Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi, welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. As I said last week, I work in an emergency room with COVID patients, and I haven't gotten that memo that I should fear this virus. When am I going to get it? Why was I left off that email list? I want to be a part of what everyone else is doing, or do I? I I, We keep repeating on this show that I believe the key is keeping our immunity system strong and healthy, and that's what gives us the best um, way to live with this virus, as viruses have been around us forever. Last week's guest, Steve Fawkes, and next week's speaker, Tom Levy, both emphasize that vitamin C is so important, and yet the CEO of YouTube wants to censor information on vitamin C and on turmeric. What's going on? So vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, good nutrition seems to be the way to go. Today, we are honored to have an expert, uh, Professor Dolores Cahill. Uh, she's done a lot of, she's got a lot of experience in research, academia, and running companies. Most important, her career is marked by integrity, data transparency, and the ability to engage in good, high-quality science, and to get, make her information available to everybody so they can check it to make sure it's absolutely accurate. She's got a degree in molecular genetics. PhD in immunity, where she was making antibodies to tumor to target tumors. Um, she could did the groundbreaking research. She could look at the specificity of antibodies used in research and diagnostic assays. Uh, she's received awards from the German minister, and she's made her public published materials globally available. And her clones arrays were distributed worldwide for everybody to use and check her results. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Susan. It's an honor to be uh, interviewed by you. Thank you. Oh, I think it's the other way around, but let's start. Is this virus, the COVID virus, as dangerous as everybody's trying to make it sound like? No, and actually, if everybody goes on to the CDC, you know, weekly uh, influenza ILI uh, statistics, you can see that this COVID uh, virus has had a steep decline and really the virus is gone from um, America and it's at the lowest level of any virus in the last 10 years. So I think we have good news this evening. Uh, but, you know, there, I mean, some, uh, tell me, tell me about countries that didn't shut down like Taiwan, Korea, and, and I understand Sweden's getting a big surge and has one of the highest death tolls. So what's going on with these countries that didn't shut down? Why, why is Sweden having problems right now? So I've looked actually specifically at the Swedish statistics. So I suppose in general, except for areas, we'll say, where there are hot spots, it seems that the deaths associated with COVID-19 are in the range of a normal influenza. There are specific hotspots like in Italy and Wuhan, and it turns out in Sweden, um, 
half of the deaths are in regions that are to do with, um, we'll say, people from Africa who are living in Sweden, and probably they would have vitamin D deficiency because they're not getting enough sunlight. And another major factor is in uh, care homes where the elderly are also a major contributor to the high number of deaths. So a lot of the deaths in Sweden are associated with Somalis and elderly people, which is contributing to the higher death rate. But I suppose in general, across the world, in the Northern Hemisphere, the deaths are around the range of a normal uh, flu year. I get the impression that they're exaggerating the number of deaths because somebody dies with the virus, like if somebody gets hit by a car and they've got the virus, they might. doctors I've heard are being encouraged to call it as a death from COVID. So are the statistics they're giving us reliable? So about six weeks ago now, it was very well publicized that the CDC and the through the World Health Organization had two codes for COVID-19, one where there was a definitive diagnosis as a cause of death, and another was where it was suggested. So that would be a way of potentially inflating the numbers. But how we can really check is the actual total number of deaths. So in Ireland, it looks like the excess number of deaths are in the region of a few hundred excess deaths. And the normal way you do it is compare the total number of deaths in each month in comparison to that month for the last five years. So it looks like in Ireland we have excess deaths of about 8% over the last five years. But in 2013, we had excess deaths um, of around 12.3%. So that, you know, you get variations depending on different, we'll say, flus. And that in Ireland, it's in the range of what we've seen over the last, we'll say, five to ten years. You can have highs and lows. And the same um, in a lot of regions of the world. So I think what's most interesting, what people are not talking about is, why are there excess deaths, we'll say, in Wuhan, but not comparison in the rest of China? And how did the virus skip from Wuhan to Italy, but really not cause much death. There are some countries in between where the numbers of deaths are very low. So that's really something that needs to be looked into, and epidemiologists and researchers will be looking into it in the months and years to come. But, like, Italy is a hot spot. New York is a hot spot. And, I mean, there are various theories I've heard that are out there connected with pollution. Uh, Elderly people with a pre-existing condition are at high risk. The young ones are, you know, obese are at high risk. And so how do we explain the the hot spots such as in northern Italy or in New York City? So that's a very good question. And it is only emerging, but there seems to be a number of contributory factors. So, for example, in the Bergamo Lombardy region, if you look over the years, they would have twice the number of deaths of the surrounding states anyway. And that is because there is an elderly population there and also because of pollution in general. So that would be one of the reasons. There also seems to be an association that in October 2019, it was in the newspapers in the region that they had 185,000 of the of an influenza vaccine. And it turns out that it may be that that influenza vaccine was made by growing the influenza virus on these dog kidney cells. And those dog kidney cells would have corona 
potentially have uh, dog coronaviruses in them. And there was a publication by Greg Wolf in 2019 from the US military, where he did an, a superb study of the uh, vaccines that were given to the US military in 2017, 2018. And he observed in his paper that they had a 36% chance of when those soldiers came across natural coronavirus of being sick due to a cytokine storm. And he said this result should be taken into account uh, for the potential use of influenza vaccines. And also there was a paper in 2012 when they were making corona vaccines for coronaviruses themselves that the animal models such as ferrets were fine after the corona vaccine. Um, but then when they came across uh, sometime later natural corona, the ferrets became very sick and they all died. So that it could be a combination of, we'll say in Bergamo, pollution, the elderly, um, and potentially prior uh, vaccination with an influenza uh, vaccine that contained these, uh, made, made from dog tissue that could contain corona. Well, I hope that they sort this out because I get the feeling we're being held at syringe point and that the solution to the whole world problems is through a syringe. But you were involved in making vaccines. You made a meningitis vaccine for the gout. And you yes, did it so with mineral what? oil, and you didn't put the adjuvants of aluminum and mercury in it. So uh, tell us more about that. So I suppose the thing is, what we did was just show that the technology, so I had invented these uh, high-content protein arrays, and the arrays that we had originally made were from human tissue, and we'd also made uh, plant tissue and mouse tissue uh, arrays, so mouse protein. So you could use the technology to make proteins from different organisms. But then because I was interested in preventative health and boosting health, and we took the outer membrane regions of meningitis and meningococcus, meningitis B that affects Africans, and then expressed those proteins because they're transmembrane proteins, it was difficult to do. And we took serum from people from the Gambia in Africa who had naturally recovered from meningitis. And when a lot of millions, you know, hundreds of thousands of people die every year in, uh, in Gambia, partly because of poor nutrition as well as exposure to this meningitis B. And when we took serum from those patients, they reacted to eight of the proteins in meningitis. And three of them had previously been known to be uh, vaccine candidates. And the five were potentially new proteins that could be used in a vaccine to elicit an immune response. Um, but you wouldn't have the, we'll say, meningitis bacterium that could potentially maybe not be correctly heat inactivated. And when we uh, looked at those proteins, they were immunogenic enough that you didn't need anything else in the vaccine to make them to develop a, an immune response to patients. So I just wanted to, I mentioned that on the Dave Cullen interview, to say that it is possible to make vaccines that just contain proteins and have a simple solution that doesn't contain any toxic ingredients that could actually be protective for people. Yeah, our guest last week was saying, I think it was in New Zealand, that people, half of the people who got the flu, I mean, ended up dying, but vitamin C helped intervene. I might have that information wrong. But he also said vaccines for kids are under two years old. They can't even make antibodies and their bodies are just not ready for it. And that seems to be a bad age at which to give all these adjuvants like aluminum and mercury. What yeah, so I, so I suppose one of the reasons why I'm coming out is that on the 5th of May 2020, the Irish Medicines Organization put out a press release 
to say that they were, you know, it, it was only a press release, but considering mandatorily vaccinating the total population of Ireland with influenza vaccine. Um, and then I then said, okay, if, if a government or a medicine organization are going to make something mandatory, then people who have safety concerns have to speak out. So I would not myself take a vaccine that has aluminium in it. And when I looked at the American schedule, I think there are 68 mandated vaccines before children go into secondary school or primary school. So the age of five or six and 70% of them have aluminium or aluminum, as you say there, or alum. So because that has never been safety tested and it's a neurotoxin damages, you know, the immune system um, and it's never been safety tested, I would not take that myself. And your guest speaker was right that babies do not have an ability to make antibodies up until, you know, a year to two years, nine months, a year, two years. So some babies in America get vaccines on day one and they get vaccinated on uh, month two, four, six and eight. And the rationale for these vaccines is to make antibodies and the little babies are not able to make antibodies at all so that they also have contained mercury and do contain um, aluminium. So the, the baby has all of the adverse effects um, and no benefit. So really that is, I would consider it unethical and that needs to be looked into. And I think Professor Blaylock has very good publications. Uh, he's a, an expert and a doctor in, neuro, in neurology, and he's done a huge amount of research into uh, the effects of the combined ingredients uh, in the vaccine, including mercury and aluminium and glyphosate and polysorbate 80. And wasn't there a study, kind of an informal controlled study in Guinea-Bissau where half the kids got vaccinated and half didn't? And uh, there are marked differences in the outcome. So uh, to be honest, I don't know that study, but there has been studies done in America where they have looked at, you know, homeschool children in America. And uh, they have very easily graphically, you know, presented how the children. So home, you, a lot of parents homeschool their children because they then decide not to vaccinate and they're not able to go to the public school system. And so I think they are like multiples, you know, they have 20 to 50 times more allergies and asthma and chronic disease, you know. And of course, the other controlled population would be the Amish population uh, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, and they do not suffer like as much chronic illnesses, tiredness, cancer, Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease in the yeah, adults. It's, it's my theory that well, it's... Glyphosate is you know, really harmful, but glyphosate and EMF will open up the blood-brain barrier, interferes with intercellular communication, um, it, it really interferes with the gut, and glyphosate interferes with detox. So it's my theory that it's a whole toxic soup that we're exposed to, and our kids are getting increasingly sick. The rates of autism have skyrocketed from one out of 10,000. I just read one out of 28. And some people predict one out of two boys within a few decades. Yeah, that was Stephanie. A, yeah. And I Stephanie, think it's one in 22 uh, boys, right? Yeah. Now. Stephanie Seneff was my college roommate. So you can imagine what that oh, was like. Oh, wow. Wow. I, she's a real hero of mine. And, and as you know, the glyphosate, it, that it prevents the natural microflora in your gut that we have evolved exactly. with. And they produce two essential amino acids. So essentially, people, if you have glyphosate, you are chronically malnourished because you don't have 
as well as it interfering with the mitochondrial pathways, as uh, Stephanie Sennett has said. But the other thing is in Ireland, we have fluoride in the water and it's only in the last few months. And it's also eight times, I think, the level. We're one of the few countries in Europe that has it. Everyone else has taken it out decades ago. But that also interferes with the... um, the conversion between pro-vitamin D and active vitamin D in the body. So it was in combination with glyphosate. It means that you could be malnourished even though you're eating well. You don't have essential amino acids in your gut, but also you're not able to correctly metabolize uh, your vitamin D. So those are all predisposed people to be uh, immune deficiency and not able to uh, have a healthy immune system. So I think, and also if you get exposure to aluminium will say in mercury there are some people who are not able to excrete those in their urine uh, particularly boys and men and then the immune system is trying to get rid of those they're essentially nanoparticles like asbestos and the immune system is physically trying to eliminate them from the body but it physically can't Um, and then that sets up a situation where you develop allergies and autoimmune diseases trying to get rid of these toxins, you know, and also the aluminium goes to the brain, as Professor Chris Exley says, and that the brain usually doesn't have an immune reaction, but it could be that these aluminium particles are seeding unusual chronic inflammation because they pass through the blood-brain barrier um, and may actually seed, you know, neurocognitive decline or inflammation resulting in brain that, or um, Alzheimer's. And the aluminium actually targets the pineal gland in the brain, and actually, interestingly, so does the fluoride in the water as well. Well, glyphosate's a chelate. It's an antibiotic, so that's one reason it'll screw up the gut and the blood-brain barrier, but it's also a chelator, so it can carry those metals around, and if it can get into the brain, why not? But I've, I've looked up at least three different... Um, Studies that fluoride lowers the IQ of kids by about six points. PCBs lowers the IQ and lead lowers, lowers the and IQ. And aluminium. Okay. And yes. these are most likely synergistic since they go through different metabolic pathways. I mean, are we dumbing our population down? Well, I think I think what we should say really is that we should now that we are in this COVID-19 and there's a lot of people and a lot of discussions are censored. What's very interesting is people from the EMF community are talking to the vaccine community, are talking to the fluoride community and the various aspects. And if we together can figure out that different pathways or similar pathways are being uh, targeted by environmental toxins or toxins coming through our interaction with the medical profession, that I suppose we should now be focusing that the children may be born in 2021 we should, you know, legally and through education and interaction, either in government or get elected to uh, really put pressure on the manufacturers of these toxins and on the medical organizations and the legislator that allows uh, these toxins to be maintained in the environment, even though we are now becoming more aware of how they are contributing to fertility issues, autoimmune disease, you know, disease issues, cancer, and neurocognitive impairment and decline. Now, what concerns me is the world leaders are pledging for vaccines that are being made. And at work, the nurses, oh, if anybody's not vaccinated, and then they have some very negative comments, the uh, doctors equally. Um, why this big hype? Why do they want to inject us all? 
That is a very good question and one which I have been asking myself because I don't understand the answer. But I think that's why, you know, the the Dave Cullen interview that I had, I think it got about 70,000 views a day. So after about a week, it had 480,000 views and then it was removed from YouTube. Um, and I think why they are not having these kind of discussions that you and I are having is that if people were aware that this COVID-19, first of all, is very similar to other influenza viruses, and also that there are preventative measures through good nutrition, reduced stress, vitamin D, C, and zinc, and also potentially vitamin A and selenium, that people can boost their immune system so we don't need to be afraid. And also the lockdown, in my opinion, was entirely unnecessary. And the way this virus works, we don't need masks, we don't need social distancing. But the other issue that they don't want to talk about is that there are about 15 different preventions and treatments and when there was a global survey of 20,000 doctors in March 25th, uh, that the vast majority of them who were prescribing off-label in a pandemic situation found that the combination of hydroxychloroquine, zinc, and AZT was the most effective. And that means that we, we actually could end the lockdown pretty much immediately if doctors worldwide had that on standby. And India is exporting to over 100 countries. And it costs uh, 10 cent to make. And in the United States, they sell it for 40 cent. So I think what's interesting is if you have a prevention through nutrition and vitamins and you have 15 different types of treatments, one of which is quite safe and effective in zinc and hydroxychloroquine, then it kind of changes their narrative that you don't need a vaccine and you don't need the lockdown at all. And in fact, then we have to turn it back on the legislators, the science advisors and the medical organizations nationally and internationally to say hydroxychloroquine was approved by the FDA in 1955. It's, it's one of the most essential drugs in the world. So, it, you know, it has been deemed safe and effective and has been used in malaria uh, for the treatment of arthritis, lupus and in HIV AIDS. So therefore, if that information was available, then we are getting into the realms of malfeasance or malfeasance in public office or misconduct, misconduct in public office where individual people would have to be asked questions and held to account whether the lockdown was necessary at all and whether this continuation of the lockdown and infringements of people's you know, rights to freedom of speech and to work and provide for their families and to travel and assemble and to participate in their religious observances are all entirely not supported by data and are potentially, you know, infringing on our inalienable rights and uh, constitutional rights in America. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, people will counteract that and said, well, it also uh, attack hydrochloroquine also attacks uh, receptors on the heart, but the and maybe really <coughs> giving arrhythmias. But the answer to that is you only need one or two pills because it's got a half life. Uh, yeah. uh, what's three months? So you just twenty one days. To, no, it has a half life of twenty one days, and it acts okay. it acts in three hours. So what I've been coming out is saying you could measure the QT interval of all of the elderly, you know, very quickly, so that you could just, you know, there are other treatments, so you can measure the QT interval and then only give it to people. But that's actually very rare. So what I would be pushing back on that and saying, you know, if that incidence is around one in a thousand. And if they're not using hydroxychloroquine because of a potential preventable adverse event, right, you can measure it so you don't have to give it to that one person, then all drugs that the uh, medical organizations and the pharmaceutical industry are selling 
have to be held to the exact same standard. So no, if they're not going to prescribe hydroxychloroquine because of a preventable one in a thousand type adverse event that is totally preventable, you just don't give it, then all drugs should be held to that standard. And a lot of the market for drugs would be finished. You know, they can't have it both ways. If they're not going to give this prevention and treatment and people will die, then they can't be selling drugs that have a much higher adverse event rate, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, hydro, hydroxychloroquine has been used 60 years for malaria, 20 years for lupus and arthritis. The embassy tried to give it to me when I was in, working in South Asia. I refused it. But it's been around forever. And just to give one pill every couple of weeks for 10 cents yeah. a pill, and you can monitor the QTC interval, very little risk. Yeah. But yeah, all the research is... Risk. Yeah. But also it's important to use it with vitamins with zinc because it acts zinc. as a way to pull in the zinc into the molecule. So without zinc, it might not be as effective. Yes, exactly. And that's why, you know, I'm calling and in Ireland and internationally now, there are at least five countries who have contacted me that are setting up uh, legal processes, you know, so they would be based on different legal systems. And we're also trying to touch base internationally to have international tribunals. But some, what's interesting, I think, is we need to take a good hard look at a lot of the medical journals and the so-called esteemed, you know, journals because they have come out with um, publications to say that hydroxychloroquine has no benefit or just has the same benefit as not. But when you look at those studies, the hydroxychloroquine was given often without zinc and it was given to uh, patients that were already in intensive care, you know, at very end stage. And that actually is not a very honest way of doing it because hydroxychloroquine is really only works in the earlier stages and at the beginning. So those studies have been hyped in the media and not weighed against the decades of use of hydroxychloroquine and the um, clinical trials were designed incorrectly. You know what I mean? Well, something's wrong. We, they must be leaving out zinc. Something is wrong with no, they were the leaving AMA out, coming they out were of this stuff. They were also given it at the very end stage, Susan. You know, yeah. they were given it too late. If you already have a cytokine storm and the patients are, you know, really advanced in the, um, the immune system, you know, being out of control, that is not really how zinc, well, then given without zinc. That would be like, you know, if you were not giving insulin to a diabetic patient and then you were to give them just insulin just before they went into a coma, you know, when really it's actually been used in the wrong way to make it look like it's not effective. And that's quite disingenuous. So I think what this is a real opportunity for people to be looking at, you know, they are recommending a vaccine that they are saying will not go through safety studies. And they're still going to probably recommend this coronavirus vaccine that might be ready without safety studies. And they are not giving a medication that has a very low adverse event. But because you can measure the heart, it probably is extremely safe and has a preventative dose. You know, it doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. Now, we're in this lockdown, which I think is the first time that we've locked down the healthy. But didn't immunologists say that there's no need for this? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would have said, you know, in, in decades of history, it was even in the Bible was well known that you quarantine sick people and then you, you know, would feed, feed them and boost their nutrition. Uh, and then uh, they would recover generally from the illness and then they wouldn't be infectious. So this is and also it was known from Wuhan and in Italy that generally the elderly 
uh, were most affected. But if your listeners are elderly now, they don't have to worry. The reason why the elderly were affected is that they might have a decreased ability to manufacture vitamin D or their immune system might need better nutrition and better supplementation. So now we know that this is an issue that people can boost their health by eating well, reducing their stress, getting a little bit of natural sunlight, and then having particularly vitamin D and zinc um, particularly, and then they will be not, you know, will protect themselves. And if they ring their doctors and get their heart measured and have maybe preventative dose of hydroxychloroquine and take zinc every day, then they, even the elderly, don't have to be afraid. And hydroxychloroquine works within three hours in the preventative dose and it lasts for 21 days. So we actually have, uh, you know, prevention and a treatment. We don't need the lockdown. We, in fact, now will know more for whenever there's a coronavirus in the years to come. We now know how to prevent it. So there will be even less deaths in the future because of the information we have now. But I'm not sure they'll allow that. That's what I'm concerned. Now, one thing, okay, we're in, what should they have done rather than the lockdown? I mean, if enough people get exposed and get antibodies, uh, would that do it? And you, I think you said yeah. that at least seven to 15% of us already have the antibodies. Yeah, when I looked into this, I think it was early February or so, I looked in the, now I can't find the information again, but it was between 7% and 15% of the world already had antibodies to the coronavirus. But of course, as an immunologist, you'd be thinking, well, why does, what does the other 85% not have antibodies? But it turns out that uh, some people actually don't have receptors for the uh, virus on their cells, these ACE2 receptors, so that even if they come across the virus, the virus doesn't get into their body, so they will never have symptoms, but they also won't develop an immune response. So that's kind of a way to challenge all of the testing. You know, they're saying if you don't have antibodies, you can't go back to work or whatever. Um, that that will, people like me will be challenging the testing and the tracking because a lot of people would never be sick from the virus uh, because they just don't have the receptors, but they wouldn't actually have antibodies either, you know. So because they have no antibodies, they'll try to vaccinate them forever. Yeah, but that's why it's entirely unnecessary, you know. And also, like, we have inalienable rights, you know, as people for bodily Do integrity. Do we? Well, we have inalienable rights, yeah. So those, they have been tried to be challenged by international organizations like the United Nations. But actually under, we'll say, common law countries and, uh, you know, in Ireland and in the UK, we are born with rights, you know. So freedom of travel, freedom of assembly, freedom to worship, freedom to work and bodily integrity. So there will be precedence cases that, uh, you know, I have said that I will take a precedence case, whether it's in our court system or under common law, to defend our, our bodily integrity rights. The government cannot forcibly um, put things into you. And because we are a republic, we would have to, uh, you know, for, um, for them to have a mandate, you would have to have a referendum. And if even a small minority of people in a republic did not agree with it, then they cannot mandate it. So I think we need to inform people uh, that we have to reassert our inalienable rights of bodily integrity. And at least in Ireland, and there's at least five countries already taking legal actions, and we will be coordinating it internationally to reassert our inalienable rights. Now, I, well, I'm concerned that 
going to define a second surge, which you made a comment in one of your interviews that in the UK, usually about 30,000 people get cancer per month, yet it dropped down to 5,000, probably because people are keeping away from their health providers, uh, that they're not dealing with non-essential surgeries, etc. So these people might end up dying and be counted as a second surge. So we go through this all again. Exactly. And that's why I think I did my interview around the 15th of May, because my fear was that the media and the medical organizations and the doctors, it was becoming well known about nutrition and vitamins and zinc as a total preventative way to boost and sunlight, you know, and because that wasn't being communicated. And then there were 15 different treatments, one of which is hydroxychloroquine and zinc that that wasn't been communicated and that in Ireland, the elderly people were being confined indoors in their care homes. They weren't allowed to go out, even to go for a walk. So then they wouldn't be getting sunlight. So what I wanted to do was to communicate that people looking after the elderly and the elderly themselves should know that they themselves should boost their immune system with zinc, vitamin D and good nutrition. Um, so why I came out was, was to put the you know, government and organizations on notice that if more people died, we'll say in care homes and that the health services and the Department of Health and the owners of those, the people who manage those homes did not provide this information that they might actually contribute to those two unnecessary deaths, you know. So I would say there is absolutely no need for a second surge associated with the virus and we should stop the lockdown, you know, within a few days, inform everybody about the prevention and the treatment, um, and then reduce the deaths and the illness associated with the lockdown, such as mental health issues, you know, people dying at home from cardiovascular disease, and undiagnosed cancers that progress rapidly, like ovarian cancer, you know, melanoma and brain tumors. And I was afraid that they would then just diagnose a whole lot of people, you know, with cancers, we'll say, or there would be a lot of deaths, and then they would label those incorrectly as COVID-19 and say, oh, we have a second uh, spike, and we would then have to carry on the lockdown. So what I was saying in an inquiry situation in Ireland after the 25th of uh, May 2020, um, that we would be looking at all of those deaths in an inquiry situation, and you could contact the family and determine, you know, from autopsies and pathology reports, if they were really cancer or heart attacks, um, and that they were misdiagnosed as COVID-19. So how should we have handled this lockdown or the getting out of the lockdown? Just if enough people get antibodies and we protect the vulnerable and take preventative measures, uh, I mean, when enough people get exposed and get antibodies, then it should be better? Yeah, so there was no need for the lockdown at all. Absolutely no need. It was becoming clear from Wuhan and Italy that that, that it was a, normous, a normal virus in between, you know, by the time it came to Europe and by the time it came to America. So people, we I, in February, we knew that there was hot spots, we'll say, but that they were different. There was a mixture of factors going on in Wuhan and Italy because there were many countries in between where there was just the normal uh, type of influenza death rate. So the lockdown is the biggest mistake of the century. It is entirely unnecessary. It's based on a false premise. And they should have communicated all of the media stations and the politicians coming out every night. They should have, from February, not had the lockdown, communicated the importance of nutrition, 
prevention, vitamin D and zinc, and said that there was a range of treatments that would potentially work because it was shown that hydroxychloroquine and zinc was working across Asia and in Europe by the time it came to America. Uh, it, the lockdown was entirely unnecessary. The modeling was entirely incorrect. They predicted something like half a million people in the UK. And within a day of the lockdown happening, he went down to predicting from 500,000 deaths to 20,000 deaths to 12,000 deaths. And I was saying, why are we having the lockdown then if it's really decreased down to within the range of a normal flu? So it makes no sense. The lockdown should have been stopped. It should never have happened. It should have been stopped within 24 hours. So the big question is, why are they doing it? And like in Ireland, you know, the police are curtailing our movements. We could only move about a mile and a half. The police would ask you, where are you going? Um, and people were being stopped alone in their cars going to the beach or walking in the countryside. And there is absolutely no medical or scientific basis for that. And that's why we need to open the discussion that now this is really an infringement of our rights, you know, to assemble and to travel and to work. And that I would say that the politicians, the medical organizations and then the police are actually have no basis to infringe on our rights and that they as individuals will have to be held to account. And then we have to review the situation so that almost set up separate safety organizations and regional organizations where people don't make money from, we say, the lockdown or the potential vaccines. And there will have to be scrutiny on individuals and science advisors and politicians that try and pull this one again. Because if they think that the second wave or another virus coming down six months or a year is going to be a tactic to, you know, try and force things onto people so that they are so poor that they will accept huge infringements on their rights and their bodily integrity, uh, that there's a, a whole movement now of people around the world that will put a stop to that and make those individuals, whether they're the head of police, the head of the civil service, if they're elected prime ministers, that they can be held as individual people for malfeasance or malfeasance in public office, which is contributing to the death or infringing on the rights of someone um, by what you did or what you should have done or what you knew or what you should have known. Well, this concerns me because the uh, pushback from the powers that be is very strong. Last June, the FBI said anybody that questions the U.S. government Government on whatever is will be labeled a domestic terrorist. They're pushing back pretty strong, and I'm concerned that they might even have a false flag uh, attack from a UFO. I mean, for some reason, I mean, things are getting very restrictive. Yeah. So I mean, um, I suppose the good thing is that there is um, a lot of pushback again. That ordinary people. Are like when they realize, you know, in six months or, you know, even in a few months that the virus, 40% of influenza-like viruses are corona. They circulate the globe within about six weeks in each region, about three weeks. Um, and that the normal, the death rate for this is within the normal influenza. And now that we know you have nutrition prevention and treatment, actually there will be less deaths from flu. And I think that's why they're so they want to stop the message getting out because if people know that there's a prevention and treatment and nutrition, then they can't pull another virus, you know? So I had expected that there was going to be a banking crash because we knew there was something going on in the world, you know, that the 
essentially the banks and the governments and the agencies, you know, are acting not in the interest of ordinary people, you know, our lives and our quality of life and devaluing our currency and economically and, you know, just almost serving global masters and not really paying much attention to the individuals and their, especially poor people and middle class people in their own countries, that we, anyone who's been involved in these kind of issues know that there was something coming down the track. And you're right, they probably are going to try and pull something else. But I think there are probably about one in 10 people now who are very aware of what's going on. And people who might have been aware in health are talking to banking and in infrastructure and in farming and food and in the tax system and in the legal system and how the police are undermining our rights, including basic rights like free speech, that I think they really uh, will have a tricky time trying to pull it off because, you know, everybody now has mobile phones as well. So that a lot of the time, things that they might have done 20 years ago, they can't so well get away with. And even people working, you know, within governments now might actually undercover record what's going on so that it might take us less and less time to really open up uh, in society what's going on. So I think it's really a really amazing time to be alive. And I think a lot of the suspicions people we would have for the last 10 or 15 years that there was something not quite right uh, is now really coming to the fore because what's going on, there is no reason for it. There's no medical reason. There's no underlying data. There's no economic reason. Uh, it's essentially they are trying to undermine our rights and bring in authoritarian you know, issues about tracking us and forcing us to have our temperature, forcing us to take medical treatments if we want to travel, if we want to do our job. And hopefully there will be enough people in the world that will stand up to it. But unfortunately, 5G, they can monitor each of us every moment, every facial expression, any time. So it's not going to be easy. But anyway, what do you think about social distancing? That's a totally unnecessary as well, because someone through Freedom of Information what actually got about three weeks ago in the United Kingdom, the rationale for why was this two meters? And it turns out that Public Health England had done a study and two meters didn't appear anywhere as a recommendation, you know? So the premise of it is entirely wrong. Uh, this virus spreads through droplets. So if two people are standing beside each other talking at a normal distance of about 12 inches or a foot or two feet, there is no transmission of the virus. And the way you can get the virus would be through coughing and sneezing. But of course, if you educate people to not, you know, to cover their mouths and, and, and when they sneeze, uh, then you don't need social distancing at all. Don't need it at all. What do you think about wearing masks? So it's very clear. And Professor Blaylock, again, the uh, neurologist, has done a recent paper to really lay out the rationale for why masks are more harm than good, and also Dr. Judy Mikovic. Uh, so I've looked into it as well. So it turns out when you have a mask on, first of all, the mesh in all the masks are much wider than the size of the virus, so it can still get out when you're wearing a mask. But uh, it also deprives you of normal breathing so that you have less oxygen and you have more carbon dioxide and that actually depresses your immune, suppresses your immune system. And you can actually have latent viruses be reactivated. 
So it's entirely counterproductive and they are not necessary. And what we need to do is to tell people about the symptoms. And once they start getting the symptoms of flu, that they should just stay at home and that they will develop an immune response within about 11 or 14 days. And then they will be immune and they can re-engage in the world. But the experts are saying, well, we don't know if these antibodies are going to work, which is the first time in history that antibodies don't work. And we don't know if they're going to last. I mean, so not only some people won't even have antibodies and be just fine, but they're saying all those of us that get antibodies that should be working fine, they say, oh, they don't count. That's not going to protect you. Why all of a sudden does an antibody not protect us? So that's why I suppose I came out because I've seen it in other areas like the carbon dioxide climate change. You know, when you look into that, which I did, you know, maybe eight years ago, that the premise of the whole carbon dioxide thing was incorrect. But they managed to, by force of kind of pressurizing people and also funding agencies, you know, getting grants by the first line saying carbon dioxide is the basis of climate change. So that if you were a scientist in that area, you would have to agree with that to get funded and to get published. So partly when you see how there's been kind of an undermining of fields of science where the premise is entirely wrong and in fact is not true, and yet they are bringing in a whole lot of societal changes about where we live or how we you know, heat our homes or insulation or cars or farming or food based on a false premise then it's much easier to then look and see what they're trying to do with the immune system. So if you develop an immune response against a particular virus, you are immune to that virus for life. Now, of course, the virus can mutate in two or three years' time to be different so that, you know, you would have an impartial antibody response and then your immune system would then develop an exquisite antibody response to the virus. But another reason why I'm speaking out is that, you know, the DNA tests only work, you have the virus maybe for the first 11 days. So you will only be positive on the PCR DNA tests, potentially for just 11 days. And you might only be positive on the antibody test after two weeks. So it's not at all clear. And also the, the primers used for the DNA test and the antibodies used for the test need not be specific for this particular virus. So why I on the Dave Cullen went into a bit of detail that the technologies I've been involved in are to test whether the antibodies and the primers, you know, used in a test are accurate because a lot of the time they are not. You're just picking up a test for any old coronavirus and 40% of the viruses that give us influenza-like symptoms are corona. So that's why we need a public inquiry globally to actually look to see what reagents are in these tests. And I would sincerely doubt that they're specific for Corona-19 because in a way they couldn't have been. If they were to pass through the regulations, which takes months, they couldn't have been specific for the elements of this virus that are unique. And also this virus already has 30 mutations. So the chances of the antibodies being specific for Corona-19 now um, are very slim. So therefore, what are they testing us with? And if they're trying to say people can work based on these tests, then it's wide open to be abused. Now, you mentioned that some of the data models uh, that they based all these fear projections on 
are inaccurate. For example, the code at the Imperial College of London has been analyzed and being biased. But wasn't Neil Ferguson one of the people involved out and about scantering around the city? Well, I suppose that's his private life, which I don't want to go into. And I have to say as well that I haven't read, while I would have coded years ago, I haven't read the code. I've only read the reports of the modeling. You know, it wouldn't be my area. But when I looked, I think there was almost 100 scientists who had gone through the code who had all said that the paper should have been retracted. And one of the issues that it was, I think, so shoddily written that when you actually put in the same parameters, it gave you different results because there was a lot of internal errors within the coding. Um, So that it looked like it was completely not a robust methodology. And I suppose that's why I mentioned the carbon dioxide uh, climate change, is that if a lot of the government policies were based on that model, which was not really publicized, you know, that should have been publicized in February and March and been really validated by that community within a week or two, you know, to check that the figures were correct and the predictions of half a million were correct. So what I'm saying is that we need to take learnings from all of the errors that are totally, you know, preventable and outrageous uh, so that this can never happen again. And also to push back on the way science advisory is done and the way the peer review is done and some of the journals, there are huge conflicts of interest and that certain people who work in governments are benefiting from some of the policy decisions that are made Um, And for example, if you're going to recommend a product like a vaccine and you are a patent holder or you have shares in the company, that that is a huge conflict of interest. And really people like that should not be engaged in making policy decisions that will impact poor, particularly poor people already and lower middle class people. You talk about Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci. Yeah, I mean, it's all over the place. You know that there are like people who advise what vaccines go on the childhood schedule. And if they do, they make a profit of like a a billion a year. And so there are some people who are advising agencies that will benefit, you know, as patent holders. Uh, And also I think in the CDC, something like one third of their income comes from the licenses and the marketing of the products that they license. So that really, you know, the amount of people who work there and their salaries are then related to whether certain products get licensed. So it, it, it should entirely be a separate uh, agency or institute that actually licenses uh, products for injecting into babies, you know, especially if they contain neurotoxins and immune, something that will damage their immune system in a period of their lives where they can't make antibodies you know it makes it's just uh, riddled with conflicts of interest so I think it's it, we're very privileged in a way to really have all of these issues exposed because I see that from 2021 we actually could have an era where children you know will not be getting those kind of injections in a period of their lives where their little bodies and brains should be growing without being injected with uh, neurotoxins. Well, also interesting, you had mentioned, well, it's it's been mentioned that Gates, uh, that a lot of people are going after meat plants and, you know, a lot of the vegetarians are saying, oh, animals are causing planet destruction, where I think it's the other way around, monocrop farming, I think is. 
um, and that you know that you know Gates is investing in lab-grown meat. So him go so the big push against meat. It seems that Gates believes good health comes from a syringe. So. Yeah, and I think when you do go down the climate change thing, you realize, you know, and you look into cholesterol and, you know, the sugar in foods and carbohydrates. Oh, yeah. That actually, if you really want a good immune system, even fasting, you know, eating like less often and eating meat and very nutritious food in small amounts is actually a way to stay healthy. So a lot of the time focusing on sugar and carbohydrates is actually not the way to have immune health and eating, you know, sugary uh, snacks and drinks is entirely incorrect. So I would push back that um, what we've been told about meat is incorrect. And that's why you can draw parallels between carbon dioxide and climate change and what's going on now and Agenda 21 and the various undermining of our rights. It's all connected, really. Yeah, and we're being censored so quickly. My film, The Big Secret, didn't mention vaccines at all, was censored by Congressman Adam Schiff. Uh, they're censoring information on vitamins on YouTube. Dr. Erickson's YouTube video was deleted, and he was on the front lines talking. So anyway, we've got two minutes left. So what would you like to say in closing and uh, and how people get a hold of you, if you wish? Yeah, thank you very much. So uh, my email is DoloresCahill at gmail.com, and I'm building a network kind of of resistance and also trying to put people in touch who are taking legal cases but I suppose my message is that I am extremely hopeful that, you know, the, the suspicions that we had that things were not quite right in our government and health systems are now emerging to be true. Um, and now that it's, you know, got sunlight on it, that I have great hope that we can easily change what's going on over the next, you know, two to five years and to look forward to a healthier world for our elderly, for everybody, but particularly for our children. So I have huge hope that we will win but we do have a battle on our hands and we have to work together across the world. So I really appreciate the opportunity, Susan, to be on your uh, show and um, just to thank your listeners for listening and for them to take courage that each of them individually can make a difference in their families and in their communities and not to be downtrodden and to stand up for their health and for their rights. And we will win in the end. This is a challenging battle that we're undertaking, and we've got to be positive, and we can't let the negativity of this get us down, so we have to remain positive, connected to our spiritual source. So, uh, you know, do your own research, share with other people, and, you know, get the word out, because um, he who does nothing is part of the problem, and above all, be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.